0: Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show... And welcome to another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments with me, Terry from Texas. Tonight we're going to travel across the pond, as they say, and visit England. I've got a few stories from England that you might enjoy. If you're from England, let me know. I'm glad to have you listening. If you're from the United Kingdom, let me know. I'm glad, really glad to have you listening. Have you ever heard of... England's Area 51. Deep in the southwest of England, in the county of Wiltshire, is a former RAF base called Rudlow Manor. At first glance, the building looks just like any other quaint English manor, but deep beneath the structure lies a vast network of underground tunnels and chambers. Contained within their walls is a closely guarded secret. For years, The RAF's Secret Service worked at Rudlow Manor across espionage and counterintelligence operations. But also, they did something else there. They did UFO investigations. The claim was consistently denied by the Ministry of Defense, but in 2007, during the release of declassified files from the National Archives, it was finally confirmed the site was the center for UFO investigations in the UK in the 1950s. Shortly before the files were released though, the Ministry of Defense announced that Rudlow Manor was no longer in use, but today the location is still fenced off and it's monitored by cameras and guarded by dogs. So it begs the question, what are they hiding? Might there be recovered extraterrestrial craft stored and analyzed there? Could the evidence of extraterrestrial contact from the Berwyn Mountains incident in 1974 and the Rendlesham forest encounter in 1980 be hidden in this highly protected facility? The Berwyn Mountain UFO incident on the evening of 23 January 1974. Residents of the Berwyn Mountains area in northern Wales reported a loud noise and a bright light in the sky. When UFOlogists claimed that a UFO crashed and the British government covered it up, that the military had recovered a crashed spaceship, some tabloid newspapers jokingly labeled it the ros incident. Scientific evidence indicates the event was generated by an earthquake combined with sightings of a bright meteor widely observed over Wales in northern England at the time declassified Ministry of Defense documents also suggest the incident was caused by the combined effects of an earthquake and a meteor. The Institute of Geological Sciences, which is now known as the British Geological Survey, reported that a magnitude 3.5 earthquake was felt at 8.38pm that night over a wide area of northern Wales and as far as Formby in England, which is 13 miles north of Liverpool. It was not immediately identified as an earthquake though, hence the police investigation. The magnitude of the shock was such that, had it been due to an aircraft crash, the resulting crater would have been large enough to be easily visible. The unusual lights reported may have been simply the meteor, or may have also included the phenomenon known as earthquake light. On the TV show Ancient Aliens, and I knew we were going to get to that one pretty quick, Former Ministry of Defense UFO Investigator Nick Pope claimed wreckage from a UFO crash was likely taken to RAF Rudlow Manor. Do you know where the Rendlesham Forest is? This is the Rendlesham Forest incident. It took place in late December of 1980, and there was a series of reported sightings of unexplained lights near Rendlesham Forest, Suffolk, in England, which have become linked with claims of UFO landings. The events occurred just outside RAF Woodbridge, which was used at the time by the United States Air Force. USAF personnel, including Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles I. Halt claimed to see things they described as a UFO sighting. The occurrence is the most famous of claimed UFO events to have happened in the United Kingdom, ranking among the best known reported UFO events worldwide. It has been compared to the Roswell UFO incident in the United States and is sometimes referred to as Britain's Roswell. So now we're going to have competing Roswells. The UK Ministry of Defense stated that the event posed no threat to national security and it therefore never was investigated as a security matter. Skeptics have explained the sightings as a misinterpretation of a series of nocturnal lights, could have been a fireball, or it could have been the Orford's Ness, O-R-F-O-R-D-N-E-S-S, Orford Nest, Lighthouse, and Bright Stars, around 3 a.m. on December 26, 1980. Now, this was reported as the 27th by the commander in his memo to the United Kingdom Ministry of Defense. A security patrol near the east gate of RAF Woodbridge saw lights apparently descending into nearby Rendlesham Forest. These lights have been attributed by astronomers to a piece of natural debris seen burning up as a fireball over southern England at that time. Servicemen initially thought it was a downed aircraft but upon entering the forest to investigate what they saw, what they described as a glowing object metallic in appearance with colored lights. As they attempted to approach the object, it appeared to move through the trees, and the animals on the nearby farm went into a frenzy. One of the servicemen, Sergeant Jim Penniston, later claimed to have encountered a craft of unknown origin while in the forest, although there was no publicized mention of this at the time, and there is no corroboration from any of the other witnesses. Shortly after 4 a.m., Local police were called to the scene, but reported that the only lights they could see were those from the Orfordness Lighthouse, some miles away on the coast. After daybreak on the morning of 26 December, servicemen returned to a small clearing near the eastern edge of the forest and found three small impressions on the ground in a triangular pattern, as well as burn marks and broken branches on nearby trees. At 10.30 a.m., the local police were called out again this time to see the impressions, which they thought could have been made by an animal. Georgina Bruni, in her book, You Can't Tell the People, published a photograph of the supposed landing site taken on the morning after the first sighting. The deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt, visited the site with several servicemen in the early hours of 28 December 1980. They took radiation readings in the triangle of depressions and in the surrounding area using an AN AN-PDR-27, which is a standard U.S. military radiation survey meter. Although they recorded .07 per hour, in other regions they detected .03 to .04 per hour. They detected a similar small burst over half a mile away from the landing site. Halt recorded the events on a micro-cassette recorder. It was during the investigation that a flashing light was seen across the field to the east, almost in line with the farmhouse, as the witnesses had seen on the first night. The Orfordness lighthouse is visible further to the east in the same line of sight. Later three star-like lights were seen in the sky, two to the north and one to the south, about ten degrees above the horizon. Halt said that the brightest of these hovered for two to three hours and seemed to beam down a stream of light from time to time. Astronomers have explained these star-like lights as bright stars. The first piece of primary evidence to be made available to the public was a memorandum written by the Deputy Base Commander, Lieutenant Colonel Halt, to the Ministry of Defense, known as the Halt Memo. That'd make you stop, wouldn't it? This was made publicly available in the United States under the U.S. Freedom of Information Act in 1983. The memorandum was dated 13 January 1981 under the title Unexplained Lights. The two week delay between the incident and the report might account for errors in the dates and times given. The memo was not classified in any way. Dr. David Clark, who is a consultant to the National Archives, has investigated the background of this memo and their reaction to it at the Ministry of Defense. His interviews with the personnel involved confirmed the cursory nature of the investigation made by the Ministry of Defense and failed to find any evidence for any other reports on the incident made by the USAF or the UK apart from the Halt memo. Halt has since gone on record as saying he believes that he witnessed an extraterrestrial event that was then covered up. In 1984, a copy of what became known as the HALT tape was released to UFO researchers by Colonel Sam Morgan, who had by then succeeded Ted Conrad as HALT's supervisor. This tape chronicles HALT's investigation in the forest in real time, including taking radiation readings, the sighting of the flashing light between trees, and the star-like objects, which hovered and twinkled. In 1997, Scottish researcher James Easton obtained the original witness statements made by those involved in the first night sightings. One of the witnesses, an Ed Cabinsag, said in his statement, We figured the lights were coming from past the forest, since nothing was visible when we passed through the woody forest. We could see a glow near the beacon light, but as we got closer we found it to be a lit up farmhouse. We got to a vantage point where we could only determine that what we were chasing was only a beacon light off in the distance. Another participant, John Burroughs, also stated, We could see a beacon going around and so we went towards it. We followed it for about two miles before we could see it and it was coming from a lighthouse. Burroughs reported a noise like a woman was screaming and also that you could hear the farm animals making a lot of noises. Halt heard the same noises two nights later. Such noise could have been made by muntjac deer in the forest, which were known for their loud, shrill bark when alarmed. In June of 2012, retired Colonel Charles Halt signed a notarized affidavit in which he again summarized what had happened, then stated that he believed the event to be extraterrestrial and it had been covered up by both the U.K. and the U.S., Contradictions between this affidavit and the facts, as recorded at the time in Halt's memo and tape recording, have been pointed out. In 2010, Base Commander Colonel Ted Conrad provided a statement about the incident to Clark. Conrad stated that, We saw nothing that resembled Lieutenant Colonel Halt's descriptions, either in the sky or on the ground, and said that, We had people in position to validate Halt's narrative, but none of them could. In an interview, Conrad criticized Halt for the claims in his affidavit, saying he should be ashamed and embarrassed by his allegation that his country and Britain both conspired to deceive their citizens over this issue. He knows better. Conrad also disputed the testimony of Sergeant Jim Penniston, who claimed to have touched an alien spacecraft. He said that he interviewed Penniston at the time, and he had not mentioned any such occurrence. Conrad also suggested that the entire incident just might have been a hoax. A 1983 Omni magazine article says Colonel Ted Conrad, the base commander, recalls five Air Force policemen spotted lights from what they thought was a small plane descending into the forest. Two of the men tracked the object on foot and came upon a large tripod-mounted aircraft. It had no windows, but was studded with brilliant red and blue lights. Each time the men came within fifty yards of the ship, Conrad relates, it levitated six feet in the air and backed away. They followed it for almost an hour through the woods and across the field until it took off at, quote, phenomenal speed, unquote. Acting on the reports made by his men, Colonel Conrad began a brief investigation of the incident in the morning. He went into the forest and located a triangular pattern ostensibly made by the tripod legs. He did interview two of the eyewitnesses and concludes, those lads saw something but I don't know what it was. Suffolk police were called to the scene on the night of the initial sighting and again the following morning but found nothing unusual. On the night of the initial incident they reported that the only lights visible were from the Orford Lighthouse. They attributed the indentations in the ground to animals. The Suffolk Constabulary file on the case was released in 2005 under the UK's Freedom of Information Act and can be accessed on their website. It includes a letter dated 28 July of 1999 written by Inspector Mike Topliss, T-O-P-L-I-S-S, who notes that One of the police constables who attended the scene on the first night returned to the site in daylight, in case he had missed something. There was nothing to be seen, and he remains unconvinced that the occurrence was genuine. The immediate area was swept by powerful light beams from a landing beacon at REF Bentwaters and the Orfordness Lighthouse. I know from personal experience that at night, in certain weather and cloud conditions, those beams were very pronounced and certainly called strange visual effects. substantial Ministry of Defense file on the subject led to claims of a cover-up. Some interpreted this as a part of a larger pattern of information suppression concerning the true nature of unidentified flying objects by both the United States and the British governments. When the file was released in 2001, it turned out to consist mostly of internal correspondence and responses to inquiries from the public. The lack of any in-depth investigation into the publicly released documents is consistent with the Ministry of Defense's earlier statement that they never took the case seriously. Included in the released files is an explanation given by Defense Minister Lord Trefgarn as to why the Ministry of Defense did not investigate further. One proposed theory is that the incident was a hoax. The BBC reported that a former U.S. security policeman, Kevin Condé, claimed responsibility for creating strange lights in the sky by driving around in the police vehicle whose lights he had modified. However, there is no evidence that this prank took place on the nights in question. Other explanations for the incident have included a downed Soviet spy satellite, but no evidence has been produced to support this either. The most plausible, skeptical explanation is that the sightings were due to a combination of three main factors. The initial sighting at 3 a.m. on 26 December when the airmen saw something apparently descending into the forest coincided with the appearance of a bright fireball over southern England, and such fireballs are a common source of UFO reports. The supposed landing marks were identified by police and foresters as rabbit diggings. No evidence has emerged to confirm that anything actually came down in the forest. However, some continue to call this explanation implausible. According to the witness statements from 26 December, the flashing light seen from the forest lay in the same direction as the Orfordness lighthouse. When the eyewitnesses attempted to approach the light, they realized it was further off than they thought. One of the witnesses, Ed Cabinsag, described it as a beacon light off in the distance, while John Burroughs said it was a lighthouse. Timings on Halt's tape recording during his sighting on 28 December indicate that the light he saw, which lay in the same direction as the light seen two nights earlier, flashed every five seconds, which is the flash rate of the Orfordness lighthouse. The star-like objects that Halt reported hovering low to the north and south are thought by some skeptics to have been misinterpretations of bright stars distorted by atmospheric and optical effects. Another common source of UFO reports. The brightest of them to the south matched the position of Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky. In his 6th January 2009 Skeptoid podcast episode entitled The Rendlesham Forest UFO, scientific skeptic Arthur Brian Dunning evaluated the original eyewitness reports and audio recordings, as well as the resulting media reporting of this incident. After a lengthy analysis, Dunning concluded, Colonel Halt's thoroughness was commendable, but even he can be mistaken. Without exception, everything he reported on his audio tape and in his written memo has a perfectly rational and unremarkable explanation. All that remains is the tale that the men were debriefed and ordered never to mention the incident and warned that bullets are cheap. Well, as we've seen on television, the men all talk quite freely about it, and even Colonel Halt says that to this day nobody has ever debriefed him. So this appears to be just another dramatic invention for television, perhaps from one of the men who have expanded their stories over the years. When you examine the evidence separately, each piece on its own merit. You avoid the trap of pattern matching and finding correlations where none exist. The meteors had nothing to do with the lighthouse or the rabbit diggings. But when you hear all three stories told together, it's easy to conclude, as did the airmen, that the light overhead became an alien spacecraft in the forest. Always remember, separate pieces of poor evidence don't aggregate together into a single piece of good evidence. You can stack cow pies as high as you want, but they won't turn into a bar of gold. In 2005, the Forestry Commission used lottery proceeds to create a trail in Rendlesham Forest because of public interest and nicknamed it the UFO Trail. In 2014, the Forestry Service commissioned an artist to create a work which has been installed at the end of the trail. The artist states the piece is modeled on sketches that purportedly represent some versions of the UFO claimed to have been seen. In December of 2018, Dr. David Clark, who has apparently now become a leading British UFO researcher, reported a claim that the incident was a setup by the SAS as a revenge plot on the USAF. According to this story, it's getting good. According to this story, in August of 1980, the SAS parachuted into RAF Woodbridge to test the security at the nuclear site. The Air Force had recently upgraded their radar and detected the black parachutes of the SAS men as they descended to the base. The SAS troopers were interrogated and beaten up with the ultimate insult that they were called unidentified aliens. To enact their revenge, the SAS gave the USAF their own version of an alien event. It says, As December approached, lights and colored flares were rigged in the woods. Black helium balloons were also coupled to remote control kites to carry suspended materials into the sky, activated by radio controls. For his article, Dr. Clark interviewed an SAS sniper active at the time of the incident and the US base commander at the time of the incident also, and both regard this prank claim as highly implausible because of security concerns. And like I said, there's a story that I thought was the same as the previous one, but turns out to have happened some 20-odd years prior to that event. The Lake and Heath bentwaters Incident. The Lake and Heath bentwaters Incident was a series of radar and visual contacts with unidentified flying objects that took place over air bases in eastern England on the night of 13-14 August 1956, involving personnel from the Royal Air Force and the United States Air Force. The incident has since gained some prominence in the literature of ufology and the popular media. The final report of the Condon Committee, which otherwise concluded that UFOs were simple misidentifications of natural phenomena or aircraft, took an unusual position in the case. In conclusion, although conventional or natural explanations certainly cannot be ruled out, the probability of such seems low in this case and the probability that at least one genuine UFO was involved to be fairly high. It has, however, been argued that the incidents can be explained by false radar returns and misidentification of astronomical phenomena. Most commonly cited sequence of events is recorded in the original Project Blue Book file by the United States Air Force, subsequently analyzed by the Condon Committee's report and by atmospheric scientist James E. McDonald. The incident began at the USAF-tenanted RAF Bentwaters in Suffolk on the evening of 13 August 1956. This was a dry, largely clear night with, observers noted, an unusually large number of shooting stars associated with the Perseid meteor shower. At 2130, radar operators at the base tracked a target, appearing similar to a normal aircraft return, approaching the base from the sea at an apparent speed of several thousand miles an hour. They also tracked a group of targets moving slowly to the northeast, which merged into a single very large return, several times the strength of that from a B-36, before moving off the scope to the north as well as a further rapid target proceeding from east to west. A T-33 trainer from the 512th Fighter Interceptor Squadron, crewed by First Lieutenants Charles Metz and Andrew Rowe, was directed to investigate the radar contacts, but saw nothing. No visual sightings of the objects were made from bent waters in this period with the exception of a single amber, star-like object which was subsequently identified as probably being Mars, din low in the southeast. At 2255, a target was detected approaching bent waters from the east at a speed estimated around 2,000 to 4,000 miles per hour. That's quite a speed gap. It faded from the scope as it passed over the base, possibly suggesting anomalous propagation as the source for the target, although ground-based radars almost always have a blind spot overhead. As it passed overhead, a rapidly moving white light was observed from the ground, while the pilot of a C-47 at 4,000 feet over Bentwaters reported that a similar light had passed beneath his aircraft. At this point, Bentwaters alerted the U.S. tenanted RAF Lakenheath base, 40 miles to the northwest, to look out for the targets. Ground personnel at Lakenheath made visual sightings of several luminous objects including two which arrived, made a sharp change in course, and appeared to merge before moving off. The angular size of these objects was compared to that of a golf ball at arm's length, and then they were stated to dwindle to pinpoint size as they moved away, an observation which seemed to rule out a bolide or bright meteor. The final phase of the incident was described in some detail by Technical Sergeant Forrest Perkins who was the watch supervisor in the Lakenheath Radar Air Traffic Control Center and who wrote directly to the Condon Committee in 1968. Perkins claimed that two RAF de Havilland Venom interceptors were scrambled and directed toward a radar target near Lakenheath. The pilot of the first Venom achieved contact, but then found that the target maneuvered behind him and chased the aircraft for a period of around ten minutes despite the latter's taking violent, evasive action. Perkins characterized the pilot as getting worried, excited, and also pretty scared. The second Venom was forced to return to its home station due to engine problems. Perkins stated that the target remained on their screen for a short time before leaving on a northerly heading. The Condon Committee included the case in its analysis, largely in response to Perkins' letter. Aside from the blue book file, it was able to obtain a previous classified teleprinter message transmitted three days after the incident from the 3910th Air Base Group to Air Defense Command at Ent ENT Air Force Base. And INT Air Force Base was an Air Force Base located in the Knob Hill neighborhood of Colorado Springs, Colorado, and the base was the site of North American Aerospace Defense Command which is now NORAD, and it, which moved to the Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Station later. The base became the int-annex to the Cheyenne Mountain facility in 1975. The teleprinter message's description of the events, including the chase episode, largely agreed with that of Perkins. Information available at the time, said the committee's researcher, a Mr. Thayer, felt that while anomalous propagation was possible, the lack of other targets on radar scopes at the time made it unlikely. Focusing on the latter phase of the incident at Lakenheath, the conclusion was that this is the most puzzling and unusual case in the radar visual files. The apparently rational, intelligent behavior of the UFO suggests a mechanical device of unknown origin as the most probable explanation of this sighting. Aviation journalist and noted UFO skeptic Philip J. Class concluded that the incident could be explained as a combination of false radar returns and misperceptions of meteors from the Perseid stream. Little information emerged on the case until the late 70s when an article in the Daily Express and a subsequent piece by astronomer Ian Ridpath in the Sunday Times produced further witnesses. Flight Lieutenant Freddie Wimbledon wrote to the Sunday Times on 19 March of 1978, contesting Ridpath's statement that the incident had been effectively explained by class. Wimbledon had been the radar controller on duty at RAF Nidishad Nidishad? I don't know, N-E-A-T-I-S-H-E-A-D at the time of the sightings and his account of events agreed with that of Perkins in some details, including the description of the aircraft being apparently chased by the object. He stated that it, in fact, had been his team who directed the two Venoms to the interception location and that the U.S. personnel at Lakenheath would have been merely listening in. Wimbledon agreed with Class's analysis, though, remembering the incident as involving a solid radar return tracked from three sets on the ground and one in the intercepting aircraft. The same 1978 press interest in the case also elicited a letter from a John Killick to the Daily Express, which he claimed to have seen in August of 1956, both a single, rapidly traveling white light at Ely, along with a Venom, and subsequently an odd group of amber lights. Four British Fortean researchers, Dr. David Clark, Andy Roberts, Martin Sho, and Jenny Randalls, have since conducted a study that has indicated that the incident or incidents were very much more complex than the Condon report had suggested. Most significantly, the air crews originally involved in the incident, Flying Officers David Chambers and John Brady from the first aircraft, and Flying Officers Ian frazier Kerr and Ivan Logan from the 2nd were located and interviewed. All involved flew with the 23rd Squadron from RAF Water Beach and were scrambled at 0200 and 0240 on 14 August, around two hours later than Wimbledon and Perkins claimed the interceptions occurred. In contrast to the reports given in the original classified teleprinter message and in the accounts of both Wimbledon and Perkins. The air crews stated that the radar contacts obtained were unimpressive and that no tail chase or action on the part of the target occurred. They also asserted no visual contacts were made. The first pilot, Chambers, commented that, My feeling is that there was nothing there. It was some sort of mistake. While Ivan Logan, the second Venom's navigator, stated that all we saw was a blip, which rather indicated a stationary target. At the time, 23 Squadron decided that the radar contact had, if anything, been a weather balloon. To add to the contradictory nature of the accounts collected, another Venom crew was traced who had been scrambled much earlier in the evening. Flying officers Leslie Arthur and Graham Schofield were not told of the nature of their target and were forced to return to base after the aircraft's wingtip fuel tanks malfunctioned. Schofield recalled listening in on the radio communications of the intercepting pilots while back at Water Beach later in the evening. Schofield's account of the overheard radio transmissions agreed, puzzlingly, with those of Wimbledon and Perkins. Although he felt able to identify the crews as Chambers and Brady and Frazier, Kerr and Logan, the time and path of Schofield's flight was identified as one which could convincingly explain the sighting of a venom at Ely by the civilian, Mr. Killick, who had claimed to see anomalous lights, were the two described in their accounts. Well, that's the stories. I don't know what to think about them. So if you're in England and you know about these stories and you want to add anything to it, let me know. I'm eager to listen. I just remember the the Bentwaters Lake and Heath story from a long time back. So that's one I've known about for a very long time. And these others have come to light with some of the other shows that that describe UFO sightings and things. So it's stuff that I've heard about. I didn't hear about uh, Berwin, but I appreciate you listening, coming along for the ride with me. If you have anything to put in, please contact me. You know you can find me on the on Facebook at Terry's Mysterious Moments, and you can find me on on email at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Now, that's Terry's T E R R Y S, not an apostrophe. So, if you want to contact me, please do. Anyway, that's the show for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you later. Have a great week.